0: modern
1: modern modern Modern.
0: Modern. we're prepping for a voyage
1: modern Modern.
0: the force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration why
1: don't you make that a double modern
0: bar cart what's shaking cocktail fans welcome to episode 269 of the modern bar cart podcast i'm your host eric koslick thanks for tuning in for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by my dear friend and past guest, Brett Steigerwald, head distiller over at Winden Distilling in St. Michael's, Maryland. He's the recipient of a 2023 research grant from the American Distilling Institute that allowed him to conduct some very cool experiments that tested the effects of using certain bacterial strains as additives in the rum fermentation process. Now, before you get all weirded out by that word bacteria, you should know that these little bugs play a crucial role in most alcoholic fermentations, but yeast get all the credit because they make that all-important byproduct ethanol. So in this chat, Brett takes us through the history and science behind the unsung microbial heroes of the fermentation world. But before we dive in, I think it's only fair that you should have the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured drink is the Atomic Cocktail. To make it, you'll need 1.5 ounces or 45 ml of vodka, 1.5 ounces or 45 ml of brandy or cognac, one-half ounce or 15 mLs of dry sherry, something like a Fino or a Manzanilla, and several ounces of a dry sparkling wine. A Brut Champagne would be traditional here. Combine the vodka, brandy, and sherry in a cocktail shaker with ice, then give everything a good hard shake until the contents are well chilled and properly diluted. Strain into a stemmed cocktail glass, top up with champagne, garnish with an orange twist, and enjoy. I wanted to feature the Atomic Cocktail because this interview was recorded at the Mirage Resort and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip, just after Brett and I had both concluded our mutual speaking responsibilities at the American Distilling Institute's 20th Anniversary Conference and Trade Show, and as it happened, we were enjoying some champagne while we chatted, so it was destiny. A couple notes about this drink. It was purportedly invented at a casino bar in Las Vegas in the early 1950s, a time when Vegas was really striving to brand itself as the Atomic City, where one could go to observe far-off nuclear bomb tests in the desert. And as much as it might resemble the love child of two straight-up classics, right, kind of like a vodka martini and a French 75, the emphasis on this drink is definitively, its potency. Because clearly, if you're in a smoky desert casino watching nuclear bomb tests while drinking one, you're not exactly holding high prospects for your own health or the fate of the human race. This means you don't want to serve your atomic cocktail in a small, pre-prohibition-style coupe glass. Here, you're almost obligated to use a V-shaped martini glass that holds between five and seven ounces of liquid. Of course, extra points if that glass spends some time chilling in the freezer before it gets filled. So, now that you've got a sinfully strong new cocktail to try next time you host Poker Night, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fascinating deep dive on the history, biochemistry, and culture of rum with distiller Brett Steigerwald, some of the topics we discuss include... How Brett applies his in-depth background in automation, fluid, and thermal dynamics, and systems engineering to design fermentation and distillation programs that create delicious spirits. The surprising connection between microbial research conducted on rum fermentations more than 100 years ago and the current quest for rum distillers to create fruitier, funkier, more interesting rums on a consistent basis. The odd tale of rum for schnitt a hyper-concentrated ester bomb of a spirit that made waves in the rum world in the early 20th century and may be the reason why Northern European nations are the world leaders when it comes to label transparency, how Brett's research has unveiled some serious potential for distillers who want an all-natural way to create specific flavors in their rums, and a fun little side project involving a unique Caribbean island and a sea turtle conservation nonprofit. Along the way, we explore the interesting tension between technology and traditional knowledge in spirits, the rancid romance of Jamaican muck pits, how to program the replicator on the Starship Enterprise, and much, much more. This is another one of those behind-the-scenes episodes where I'm trying to give you an opportunity to peer behind the curtain and hear what people who are truly on the cutting edge of spirits making are thinking and talking about. Fortunately for us, Brett is a really great communicator of technical information. For every reference to esters or acid-base interactions or thermodynamics, he peppers in something about painting or cooking to help us really latch onto the core of his quest for flavor. I also like this chat as a slight tonal departure from my normal interview style. We're face-to-face sharing a bottle of champagne after several days of cross-country travel and high-pressure live speaking, and I take it as an opportunity to be a bit more playful with some of the back-and-forth with a dear friend. We'll have links to Brett's dissertation as well as the PowerPoint from his ADI presentation over on the show notes page, but for now, please enjoy this nerdy, funky bacteria-laced interview with my friend, distiller Brett Steigerwald. Toast. Cheers, man. Cheers. Brett Steigerwald. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Again, welcome back. Mm -hmm. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with our our dear friend, Brett, uh, we had a great Baijiu tasting with our friend Derek Sandhouse from Ming River Baijiu. Um, so we'll link to that episode in the show notes. But um Brett, uh, we just got done with a couple of days of the American Distilling Institute's 20th anniversary conference and trade show. And uh, we got a little champy champs here. And uh, I just wanna ask, uh, how you feeling?
1: <laughs> i feeling pretty good, feeling pretty good. It was a very long, very long road to, to get, um, my dissertation done and, you know, present for ADI since I was their grant, uh, the research grant recipient. And it's just really exciting. There was a lot of interest in this, at least from many of the attendees. And I think there's going to be a lot more in the coming days when people contact me hmm. as they review those pictures and realize that I would have just sent them <laughs> the slides they that they were all screenshotting. So, um, but yeah, no, it's good. There's a, It started a lot of conversation and both Lawman and Fermentis said, Immediately after that they probably had 15 to 20 people come over and talk to them about a lot of their products. Oh cool. So that's cool. cool. Well, it it's def- good to,
0: it's it's good to support our vendors and I think as we chat here we'll figure out what these what these folks are actually doing but um, for folks who don't know you are the head distiller at Lion or Lion Rum Wind Distilling Company, correct? Yep. yep. St. Michael's MD. Um, what kind of stuff are you doing over there when you're not doing crazy research for the American Distilling Institute from their grant?
1: Um, well, right now, uh, we uh, the big focus is going to be on the Blackberry rum. So when I get back, um, we're going to be getting in on oak and then just doing the planning process to figure out racking, filtration before we do the Demerara syrup sweetening, and then because this year's batch we picked 1626 pounds of blackberries by hand from Emily's produce in Cambridge as well as another farm that was contributing um, this is the biggest batch ever and we've done some rough math but I think we're looking at like potentially 3500 bottles which compared to last year which was I think uh, we picked like 700 pounds so it's a hu- mm. it's a huge increase you get three quarters of a ton right uh, yeah yeah and uh, yeah it's a lot of blackberries Wow. Well, wow. so that's 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 the immediate one. But in general, um, I have a hand in every product that we make and I have a hand in planning and coordinating all the logistics of making that and facilitating that successfully. And most importantly, exactly the same as the prior batches, because if you um, if you can't make something that tastes like the last batch, you're not going to be in business for very long.
0: Mm-hmm. Consistency. You're a you are a. Uh... How do you describe yourself? something involving automation and robotics?
1: Uh, Yeah. So I have multiple degrees in mechanical engineering. Uh, I went to University of Utah for, to get a a graduate degree in autonomous robotics, but I didn't get any funding and walked into a funding source. So I kind of pivoted and ended up doing footwear design for people with limited ankle mobility, like myself. Um, and well, because the economy kind of crashed in 2008, nine and 10. I remember that. Yeah. It was not fun times. Mm -hmm. Uh, nobody cared about uh, my research experience and all the entry level jobs then became, you need five years experience. Sure. And I couldn't get a job. So then I went back to, um, community college, got a degree in automation. So it's technically called mechatronics. So think of where electronics and uh, controls come from the electrical world, meeting mechanical design. And fabrication and then you add in computer programming so where those all meet that venn diagram that's what i'm good at so anything in a factory that is electromechanical or fluid or pneumatic that has inputs and outputs that you can control with like a micro pro like a microcontroller or a plc system so a programmable logic controller um, i know how to operate design run so anytime if if we ever wanted to automate the distillery i could program everything
0: so like Raspberry Pis, Arduinos, all over the place. Oh,
1: that makes me so happy that yeah.
0: you know about that. Yeah.
1: Oh, that that actually I think makes my day. I, ju- I just know a couple
0: of words. that, no, but that reference it. They're but, uh, they're
1: re- They're really fun, and yeah. you could do a lot of it. Uh, a lot of this kind of stuff, and like uh, my wife Willoughby, um, got to meet one of my friends when I used to work at Bridgestone, who had all these crazy automated devices at his house, and he would have these giant street lights, so the the red, um, yellow, and green flashing and coordinating to the music that he would play because he was an audiophile and uh it was like going over to a mad scientist's house so Hmm. you can get all these things especially like the older the older uh versions and on ebay pretty cheap and you can practice and play with them but um there's a lot you can do now yeah so you have a if i were to summarize it you have
0: a you have a manufacturing process focus
1: yes i um i'm really good i would say I can design mechanical systems in terms of like helping you pick gears and all of that, but I'm much, much better at um, determining like fluid and thermal systems and kind of figuring out, well, you know, how do you design this to be most efficient for your process? And like, uh, how do you size uh, the boiler that you'll need in terms of like uh, uh, steam pressure and all of that in terms of heating? So basically if, it's kind of like the work I'm doing at Dominica. you know, I helped us select the boiler that we'll need. I helped us figure out the propane that we're going to need. I helped figure out exactly where they have to be located in the building for safety and all these other things. So yeah, it's, it's, it, it, I'm kind of perfectly situated to, to help start up distilleries and other places, uh, for the most part. Now, since I'm not a certified engineer, I can't like put a stamp on the drawing, which is fine, but I can at least get, you know, get us almost all the way there and then a professional engineer will look at over and be like, yeah, that, yeah, that works.
0: Oh, we'll get you a stamp. We'll get you. We'll get you a stamp, buddy. I, I'm. Yeah, we'll get you one one day. But uh, let's wrap up on Dominico. We'll get back to that. But what I want to focus on right now is, so, you are, this process and kind of like mechanical, fluid, thermal dynamics person, and I want to know what the hell all that has to do with rum.
1: Well, I mean, it's simple. Um, you need energy to do fermentation and distillation I mean it's, it's 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 very simple like you you have to be able to heat up liquids cool down liquids pump them over to things then if you're doing distilling you've got to have a way of heating them until boiling points to have your compounds separate which we'll circle back to later on I'm sure and um, that's what it that's what it relates to so again like I think distilling is is built upon harnessing these types of controls in some way, whether rudimentary or um, very like fine in terms of like fine process control, like a lot of the larger like uh, conglomerates or the bigger facilities that do have a little bit more automation. So those just allow you to um, better understand your process. And if you better understand your process and the intentions that you're trying to to bring to that, you can then make better spirits, at least in theory. There's a lot more to that because you have to understand the whole back end of that to to get there, but you know I think that's very helpful for this industry. And oftentimes I think you can go into a facility and, and tell if this is you know the person who maybe has started it up came from um, like a engineering or science background versus somebody that came from a different background just by how they laid out everything, just be just based on their process flows and all of that.
0: I think what you're what you're saying reminds me a lot, ironically, and I think this will actually get us into your research. It reminds me. Of the agave world, in terms of, I, I think what you described is a very mechanized, very advanced, very um, top-down way of organizing a system to do the thermal, mechanical things that you want it to do, mm-hmm. and to kind of work with these little microorganisms that we that we kind of harness to create the initial ferment for our for our spirits but i th- i think the other side of that coin is letting go a little bit right letting letting jesus take the wheel and <laughs> saying like ooh all right well here i am in my in my like little corner my little microbiome my biome my microbiome of the world mm-hmm. and here's how my space works based on my experience and saying like whoa well you know and i think that's some of the romance of these really small artisanal ancestral style um uh like mezcal um distilleries where they're doing a lot of stuff based on just knowledge and with very little automation Mm -hmm. or, or or mechanization and i think you can get there from both ways but it's interesting to have both both of those kind of mindsets in conversation when you're trying to think about how you want to make these products because and now i want to transition to your research you have a grant from the american distilling institute or you had a grant that that you have fully executed and uh in that grant you were doing some really fascinating research that i really enjoyed reading through about uh, rum production styles from old times not super old times but old but recorded times um uh, compared to today and I would love to talk about that research, and maybe we can get into that by having you explain to our listeners why you were throwing bacteria
1: into what you are about to try and make a spirit out of. No, sure, and I, and I get that, especially, you know, for all of us that have just recently gone through this, you know, pandemic for the last <laughs> several years. Like, everyone became- Are you throwing
0: viruses in too?
1: No. That's messed up, dude. <laughs> No, absolutely not. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that would even add any kind of useful component, so no. And I think that would be the first approach. I'm like, does a virus help in your fermentation? <laughs> no. Okay, well, then that's the, that, well, that's the straw for that. We're going to have to just throw that aside. No, But, you, but just, to, just to comment on what you said, distilling is very left and right brain. And mm-hmm. you, can, you can design this very technical process, and you can understand it down to the finest detail. But still, there is an art because it's based on your sensory, it's based on your understanding, it's based on all these things. So when you look back at history, which is always a great place to start, just to give yourself context before you attempt something because there's no sense in you wasting time if other people have proved that that just doesn't make sense. Because um, you know, you might be a genius, but if, if many people haven't figured it out ahead of you, good luck to you, But you, there's probably a reason why that doesn't work. So with, with these kind of techniques, if, when you look back to say 100, 120 years ago, bacteria was always present in the fermentation environment just because they did not have our modern like control methods for example and our modern understanding i mean they had just discovered saccharomyces which is the norm, like saccharomyces cerevisiae that's what you that is you know known throughout the world as kind of like the quote beer quote yeast that's what allows us to have just, you know in general alcoholic beverages and there's other variations of that now um, back then they had literally just figured out that hey, this is what's actually happening in our fermentation. It's foaming at the top. Well, let's, let's skim that, and we just got a microscope, so let's check it out. And, and then yeah, oh,
0: yeah, let's. Pa- I want to pause you there, yeah. and I don't. I know that's a terrible place to interrupt because you were on a roll. But this is, I think, this is an important thing to know. Of like, we because we just got a microscope. This is something I was fascinated with because a lot of your research happens in the late nineteenth century, yeah. And you're talking about Saccharomyces. And it's like, well, all right, maybe we didn't just get a microscope, but we just got a microscope capable of allowing us to distinguish between strains of yeast. Yeah. So the crazy thing is, and I'm not, a, I probably should have done some research on this, but I was busy memorizing a keynote speech.
1: But which, you, I, which you just absolutely crushed.
0: Thank you. I appreciate you that. You will always hear me say that. But... I want. I'm curious as to the proximity of this research that you're citing. Is it closer to where we are now, or is it closer to the discovery of germ theory?
1: I would say it. More than likely, um, I would say it falls maybe slightly closer to that. But the irony is, it's still entirely relevant because yeah. a lot of the content, a lot of the things you hear discussed in rum. Like you'll hear people like wax poetically about the dunder pits of Jamaica and all of that. The goat's heads. Yeah, and all, the, and all these things. There's a mythological component to this, right? And even when like those distilleries would shut down, I, I can't remember which one it was in Jamaica, but the locals there kept that pit alive with the hope of it one day being utilized again to make their beloved rum. So it obviously still is relevant. I mean, like why on earth would, if, if there was a, you know, a big pond in the back that smelled terrible... <laughs> <laughs> but it made great rom back when the distillery was going like i i mean this is like this is like you're almost like fanboy territory here it's like i love this stuff like somebody's trying to keep it going but it's still very relevant because a lot of the same topics people talk about they're 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 basically almost reinventing but when you look back 120 years it was all documented and even though they didn't have our modern understanding of everything, they still knew enough where they could do trial and error ratios of, well, add a little bit of this, we'll add a little bit of that and just kind of see what happens and they'll distill it in this way and then you can kind of track it. So I thought to myself like, well, okay, going back to your bacteria question, why do we want to use bacteria? Well, you know, if you're brand new to like doing any kind of fermentation or if you're doing any kind of distillation, I would strongly encourage whoever that is to just, I would say pick a yeast, maybe talk to a supplier or go to like your local, you know, brew house supply place yep. and say, okay, I, I just want to do a very simple fermentation. Say, I got apple juice or whatever, right? What do you think is going to ferment that really well? And they're like, oh, okay, cool. You're making a cider? Cool. We'll just try to make you basic cider. Well, all apple brandy is is distilled cider, right? It's just slightly different cider, but it's cider. So I would recommend that you would bring that to some kind of sterile way, like you would boil it. You'd cool it to whatever the yeast needs. You throw in the yeast, you ferment it, and then you would distill it. And then over time, you would understand exactly how that yeast reacts. And that is one one of the what one of the researchers way back in 1903 was advocating.
0: The but clean, like a clean style,
1: very right? clean, right. low bacteria, and you have a known yeast. So you right. know the yeast that you're going into. There's nothing in that because you boiled it. Anything that might have been present, any micro microorganisms, would more than likely be be killed during that boiling step. And then you would understand, well, this is what this yeast does. Right. It's
0: like a control. It's a
1: control. It's a control. Exactly. So then you could then say, okay, well, what if I don't sterilize it? What if I just throw the yeast in and see what happens? Right. Okay. Well, over time, some trial and error, just like they were doing 120 years ago, you would eventually figure out, well, how does that affect my distillate? Right. So what kind of brandy in this case would be produced? And if you still had your old stuff, you could then taste And I would assume if you're going through all this effort to try to make something, or at least understand it in a rudimentary scientific way, you would at least take notes. So at the end of that whole thing, you would have an understanding. Okay, well, when I did sterile, this is what it tastes like. Well, hey, this thing with a little bit of bacteria or being non-sterile, it's a little more interesting. Hmm, I wonder why. Okay, well, luckily, we know now that those bacteria create these acids Right, And those acids eventually lead to flavors through the metabolism into the yeast and other conditions. And I can go sciencey or not, but oftentimes in the rum world, you hear people talk about this thing called esters. Mm. Well, what are esters? Esther, and, and again, I will throw out the big caveat here. I am not a biochemist, but I can tell you in a rough way how they're formed and how to make it through all the way to your distillate from fermentation. So an ester is when an acid, just something that we all know, say.
0: And an acid is just certain, like something with a certain pH, right?
1: Exactly, so we all know vinegar, right? Tastes sour. Tastes sour, exactly. So again, if you've ever had juice that you've left out, it might've fermented, but if you leave it out long enough, it will get very acidic. And we've all probably heard of vinegar, right? Vinegar comes from many different sources, but just let's say grapes, right? So if you allow grape juice to sit, It'll ferment, so you'll get some alcohol, but then over time with that oxidation, it'll eventually become acid. So you'll have acetic acid that just comes from a bacteria that's there. So then if you were to have an alcohol-rich environment and you added that acetic acid in, you, in theory, would be on the way to making an ester. So an ester is just an acid plus, excuse me, an acid plus an alcohol. Mm. So depending on what acid that is, you'll get different esters.
0: And these esters, especially in the rum world, and this is something I think is worth noting and pausing on here, when we talk about funky rum or grassy rum, right. or and like we all know that rum is this incredibly diverse spirits category. It's uh, what Matt Petrie calls a bump 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 meta category. Yeah. There's all these types of esters, and the appreciation of the esters in rum is something that actually transcends all those categories. So I think it's worthwhile for us to think about these, not just like it's, you know, it comes up a lot in the discussions of Jamaican rum, funky, estuary, oh yeah, hogo, whatever. Um, but it's not just in super funky Jamaican rum and, and esters, you know, one of the things that, that you'll appreciate if you were to read through your dissertation is that esters can be easily measured and that they sort of correspond to these different styles of rum, right? So can you fast forward us to the point where this research that started happening in like the 1890s eventually got to the point where people were starting to classify these rums based on ester concentrations? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, So back uh, between 1890 and 1920s, they started to have rudimentary classifications of Jamaican rum. And the reason I went to Jamaica mainly is because there's a lot of things that are documented there. And at the time, in terms of like the Rome, In English, right? Right, in English. So that, that's the big challenge when you're looking back um, at history is, you know, these islands, you know, still colonial territories at this time, you know, you had English speaking islands, French, Spanish, and then you also had Portuguese influence, depending on where you are in the world. So in that language family, you'd had English resources, French, Spanish, and Portuguese. Well. I speak English, obviously, and I understand enough French to be able to read those things. But again, it, it is a big challenge to kind of understand the context when you read that. So it takes, it could take me two hours to read like 10 pages to really understand what you're going on. So I just said, okay, I'm just going to go just with Jamaica because a lot of people talk about it. And a lot of those things that I mentioned earlier, like Dunder and all that, people still talk about it. So I was like, okay, let's, how do I make a big impact for people in the rum world or potentially getting into it because they may be fans of these, you know, big flavorful rums. And, um, so during the, from 1890 to 1920, as they started to better understand, well, how do fermentations lead to this, you know, distillers, and again, they may not have had, may not have had the science, but they could tell when the rum produced was very heavy or the rum produced was very light. So oftentimes they would just change a component. So if you're doing rum today, and just say you're just doing it from molasses, you're gonna have water and molasses. You're gonna dilute it to whatever sugar concentration or BRICS level or specific gravity. Um, and then you're gonna add a yeast at a certain ratio because you know, they'll give you a range. And through trial and error, you'll end up perfecting that for whatever it is your process. And if you're using, say, a, this <clears throat> the Saccharomyces yeast that I talked about earlier, you're gonna end up with a rum that is gonna be lighter in body, It'll have principal aromas of certain types of you know chemical compounds, those esters, and it'll have a certain range, right? So they started to realize, because they could then quantify that in a scientific way, that, okay, when we do it this way, we get this style of rum with this many esters. But if we allow the fermentation to go longer, or we have different components to it, maybe adding those acids or these bacteria that would be creating this acid, you could have a more flavorful rum it would just take longer for your fermentation. And then you would have to let it like say rest a little bit because the yeasts are doing their thing in the beginning and the bacteria tend to do it a little bit later and as they understood that in a rudimentary way they could make much more flavorful rums. So over time they were able to classify that to like more or less light, medium, heavy and then like super heavy. And, and what was
0: the super heavy one?
1: The the super heavy one is what they would just call flavored, right? So you What about the Germans? Oh, yeah. So to they, Germans. Yeah, they would call it flavored or German. Well, why would it be called German rum? Because back during the 1890s, up until about World War One, Germany had a huge tariff on imported spirits to protect their home market. And the Germans really liked rum. But in order to import it, it would be a, it'd be very expensive for people in Germany and also for the people exporting it from Jamaica. So Ingenious chemists and other distillers realized if we could just figure out a way to more efficiently make these really funky, strong, high ester or flavored or German style rums, you could have a bigger market share in that in that region. And then because the people there are still blending whatever rums they're importing, you could still make an authentic Jamaican blended rum. Um, And one of the reasons that they even got into this in the first place was there was this product um, called Rum Verschnitte which was more or less they would, they would have, I would say, um, some kind of like neutral distillate produced maybe say from potato or grain or something. That's a- a- NGS. More or less, yes. Yeah. They would have an NGS and then they would add a little bit of Jamaican or other kind of components to simulate that. Um, and again, this is ripe. Like if you look back in America, this was, this was happening in the U.S., And this is what led to like say the bottled and bond act it was like a food safety act right same thing happening there because that fake rum product which is still around today by the way um was starting to affect their ability to do business in germany so the the people selling it and buying it in germany were contacting those um producers in jamaica say hey like we need we need a. We need a. We need more flavorful products here because it'll help us be able to make authentic Jamaican blended rums for sale in our home market. And I think we, in this way, we can kind of hold off this, you know, this phony, from like taking our business.
0: So would you say? And I might be completely just whiffing on this assumption, but one thing I know about um, certain things like additives in the rum world yeah. is that if you. Look on like a U.S. or English language website. Generally, you're not going to see any of the additives. But if you go to a German website or any of the
1: Scandinavian countries,
0: they have to list all their additives. Do you think that that might be partially in in a reaction to that sort of trend?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think so, because once people started to understand that these additives had a negative effect and then it could potentially be detrimental to somebody's health or other things. They would have a reason to do something about it. And in the rum world, and again, like I used to drink cheap rum in college before I really knew anything, you still have additives today, but in the US, they don't talk about it. And it's a huge point of contention for a lot of people, particularly purists, and also for people like me who are very honest distillers that believe in, like, you know, telling people this is what's in the bottle. Because if you're going to take the time to consume this, I want you to know what you're about to put into your body. Because, you know, as an engineer, when I graduated, the first thing I had to do was take an oath to always keep the public good paramount and never do anything. I had to do that graduation day. I had to take an oath to do that. So, I will always keep the public good above anything that I'm trying to do. I have to make sure that no one gets hurt. Well, so if I so may- is that
0: like so if the medical version of that is the Hippocratic oath. Exactly. What is is that just a, a Hippocratic oath?
1: Part um, two? Yeah, I would say it's something like that, but it's you like it. it basically, you you swear um, when you when you graduate. At least you know not everyone does this, but like I I was a part of this this thing called the Order of the Engineer. It was part of my graduation ceremony. You get a little pinky ring and all this stuff. Ooh, I don't see it. Yeah, well, I, you know, I didn't I didn't bring it this time, and also it doesn't quite fit. It keeps falling off. It's
0: Vegas, baby. You should have a pinky ring. I
1: know I should, but so when you do this, you have to <laughs> you have to swear that you will never put the public at risk because. Oftentimes you'll have pressure, say you're an engineer, to meet deadlines where they are not going to tell you per se to cut corners, but they're going to say, we really need to get this done. And it is your duty to stand firm and say, no, I'm not going to do that. You're going to have to delay this project.
0: Hello, Modern Bar Cart listeners. It's Jordan Hughes from High Proof Preacher. I wanted to let you know about my new cocktail and product photography e-course called Cocktail Camera 101, and it is now open for new members. The course is all online, it's self-paced, and you have lifetime access to the material. So go to cocktailcamera.com slash 101 to enroll and use the code the modern bar cart, all caps, no spaces for 75% off enrollment. I hope you check it out and learn how to up your cocktail and bar photography game with me. Cheers.
1: So how does this relate to the esters? So how does that all relate to the esters? Well, So backing up from, you know, them importing this to deal with that whole fake product.
0: It sounds like a flavor extract. It sounds like a really intense flavor extract. So are you saying that with the Rum in Germany in the 1900 to 1920 range, there were detrimental health effects?
1: Um, I'm not necessarily saying that. I just know that that was one of the impetus for them doing this very high ester process and again, like they would do this, pro- say they were making a very like good, easy drinking, maybe lower ester rum, right? So think of your everyday, like a, like a, just a mixing rum. Not sure. that. A daiquiri uh, rum. Yeah, like a daiquiri rum. mix makes a great daiquiri. Um, you may add, it may add different mouthfeels, but in general, you can use it for that. You can sip it on its own, but it's made it's made for cocktailing, right? Yeah. But it's nothing like very super intense. It's not Smith and Cross. Exactly, or Ray and Nephew, or any of these types mm-hmm. of things. So I can't necessarily speak to whether or not it was detrimental on on the health side in say Germany, but there is evidence to suggest that that was the reason for them going into that route to begin with. Now, when they did that, when they make these really heavy flavorful rums, it was very detrimental to their standard process to make that lighter rum. Uh,
0: I see in terms of efficiency. In terms of efficiency, because
1: say for example, you use dunder. Well, dunder is just when you drain the still, right? So you've done your fermentation, you're going to do your first distillation. It's called a stripping run. And the liquid left over in the still is called, they would call it dunder because it's rich in acids, sugars, and like say dead yeast. So they would just drain that. So and it's you, kind of
0: like spent mash.
1: Spent exactly. mash or like a sour mash kind yeah. of a thing. But in Jamaica, because you're on an island, you're not going to let anything go to waste, right? So you're just going to drain this and have some kind of concrete line storage pit, which over time would become heavily, I don't wanna say infected, but I've just done I've just done that. So it's gonna end up being able to host a host. lot of- Yeah, there it is. Um, like a lacto- Ho- it's like
0: hospitality, right? Yes,
1: right. So they're like, oh, it's a very inviting environment for these <laughs> specific strains of bacteria called like lactobacillus. If you've ever had yogurt and you look in the back of that package, it tells you what's in there. So bacteria aren't necessarily bad, but those bacteria over time and especially, specifically, Trying, trying to make those German-style rums, that pit would become so acidic, it would be very detrimental because yeast can only survive in a certain range of you know, pH. Right. So when they would use this as a, as a dilution agent or an acidifying agent or whatever for their process, it would start to negatively affect their ability to make you know, their bread and butter type of rum, that common mixing rum. So even if, say, say you and I had a rum distillery back then, You'd say, OK, well, we need to keep this many bottles coming out every single you know, production cycle whatever, but we also need to target this market. Well, you can't really do both. You're going to have some kind of negative effect. So a gentleman named H.H. H. Cousins invented a process called the Cousins process because he realizes, wait a second, those acids end up being concentrated in the stills after we do our you know, second distillations, or if they're using like a double retort system, it'll be caught in those retorts. So he figured out, it was like, wait a second, if I can just figure out a way to liberate those from that liquid, we could then supercharge those retorts and not have to do that crazy detrimental long mm. long style process. And he ended up uh, making this process, it's called the Cousins process. And like I said earlier, those heavy flavored rums would, would be say 1000 to say 1600, you know, grams per hectoliter absolute alcohol. That's just the term. And the ones that he was able to produce, every time anyone could do this at any distillery, could be up to four to six thousand. So think of it like a super concentrated it's like four to five Xing. Yeah. So super concentrated Jamaican rum, which would then be used for blending in Germany or on the island if you needed just to add a little bit more character to your rum. You're not using anything artificial. It's still rum but you're just adding this extra drop or two of concentrate to really bump up your, you know, your house product. So when you were saying
0: detrimental earlier, and I feel like I misrepresented this, we're not talking about detrimental to people's health. We're talking about detrimental to the economic viability of the distilling operation. Absolutely. Right. So I'm sorry that I misrepresented that. Um, This brings us, I think to a great opportunity to kind of, describe and jump into the research that you're doing because what did this guy do cousins he yes. creates this way of like and you lay this out in your paper which we'll uh, of course have available to the people who want to nerd out and read about it but essentially he takes like a super base and a super, like a super acid and strips this stuff and reconstitutes it as like a concentrate essentially yeah From from and then like you said, he recharges this portion of the still that would then be used to do sort of like the spirits run eh? exactly and capture this stuff. So now we are a hundred years past that point, right and. We had during. There was some stuff going on. There was a Great
1: Depression, a World yeah. War, um, and also modern. Got- and also the modernizing of production facilities in Jamaica, which oh. they were very resistant to. Right. So and 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 you covered all this stuff
0: in really great detail. Actually, I'm I'm trying to gloss over it so we can get to your personal research. Uh, so we will have your full paper available to everybody. But essentially, we have to fast forward from this guy Cousins, who found a way to do what everybody wanted to do and create these really intense flavors with way less work and just a few help helping chemicals. And now we find ourselves in 2023 and we have this interest in getting these characters into our rum again. But now, as you mentioned, just now we have this much more mechanized, much more sterile process for doing things. So what does that mean? What do we have to do now? So,
1: so now instead of, you know, relying on natural, naturally present things being, you know, utilized, like instead of doing a natural style fermentation, now we we can pick a yeast, whatever yeast we want that's available from any supplier, and when you pick a yeast, they In will, powdered form, right? Yeah, it'll be they call it a uh, distiller's dried active yeast. So again, it's just a dry yeast. You would basically open a packet, like a little sachet, a D day. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was calling. That's what I call him. Yeah. I always call him daddy just because it's funny to say. (laughs) Um, But so these types of products, literally, like if you've ever opened like a tea sachet, right, you cut it open, you pull your your tea bag out. Very similar, except you've got a certain amount of yeast in there. Well, every yeast needs to be rehydrated before you can use it. So all you're doing is rehydrate the yeast, you add it to your fermentation and as long as you know you've had really good hygiene and, and protocol with your fermentation, so like things are clean and all these types of things, you should have a you know, a repeatable fermentation. And if you have repeatable fermentations and you at least know what you're doing on the distilling side, you should have a repeatable product, right? So you'll know what your 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 house, say rum will taste like. But if you add these new bacteria products to it, you can then which, which is also something that some of these we'll
0: call them chemical adjunct manufacturers for the beverage industry
1: i think that would i think that would be a fair statement i mean right. they yeah.
0: they're like and and to be fair like the like it sounds scary when i say it but like Listen, we're doing like this whole like little series on super juice. I'm trying to like get together some stuff on super juice, and you just go to like Modernist Pantry or Amazon.com. Right, exactly. And you can buy like anhydrous citric acid, yeah, exactly. malic acid, all that stuff. We can all like we can all use this in our home kitchen as well. It's just that when we're doing things at scale, generally you work with these specialized companies. So it's not that like it sounds very sterile. It sounds almost almost like labby medically grade, which it is in the manufacturing of it. But in terms of the use case, it's not like, it's not scary.
1: No, it's not scary at all. You can, I mean, literally if you wanted to do any fermentations, it would be, if you're already, if you're already say, you want to make beer or something like that? It's not really any different than that because you're just adding a, basically a, um, it's kind of like you know how when you when you hear of hibernation, right? These things are basically hibernating.'re yeah, they're, they're in a they're in a, a safe state and they're just waiting to come back to life more or less. Yeah. So these yeast, yeah, you rehydrate them, you can use them that way. and these bacteria products that these companies have developed, they know you know what kind of specific effects they're going to add. so if if you could make a um, I don't want to make a math reference because math can be scary for some people.
0: Um, Including me.
1: Yeah. But if if you're looking at it in terms of like flavor, right? Like say say you're cooking, right? A lot of us use salt. A lot of us use pepper, garlic powder and all that because you're you're looking to say, okay, I want this overall experience Mm. in the dish that I'm making. Well, if I know my yeast is going to add a character or if it's just going to be neutral and let the base ingredients come through and I like those ingredients, these bacteria products allow you to say, okay, well, I can take that and then I can add like an extra creaminess. I can add roundness to the overall profile. I can add tropical citrus notes and I can also add some fruity characteristics. And for those of you that are anophiles or wine lovers out there, this has been done for a long time. It's called malolactic fermentation. So if you've ever had say a California Chardonnay that's really Mm. buttery, right? Buttery. Exactly. Those, that type of richness and mouthfeel comes from that extra added bacteria. It doesn't hurt you, but it just makes things taste better if you know what you're doing.
0: Paging Rombauer. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely and you know for those of you that may still not quite understand when i talk about esters if you've ever had say like a new zealand sauvignon blanc and you Ooh. smell that and you're like man grapefruit. that's oh, a grapefruit i get passion fruit wow. those are esters so an alcohol was ba- bonded to an acid during the fermentation process and created this lovely flavorful aromatic and tasty you know mm-hmm. you know thing and that's all we're doing but with modern, with modern techniques now, it allows you to pick and choose a lot. Like for example, if for your listeners out there, if you've ever had a Hefeweizen, say from Germany, like a Vine Stefaner or something oh, like yeah. that, you're gonna get like banana notes, you're gonna get clove. Well, guess what? If you use a Hefeweizen style yeast to make rum, guess what you're gonna get in your rum? Besides your base ingredients adding something, you're also gonna get banana and clove. So now if you're thinking like, I hope you're thinking, you're like, wait a second, if I have this yeast to add this profile and I know what the bacteria is going to do, now it gets really fun because you can kind of pick and choose and it's going to be a little bit of a trial and error process, but don't worry, it's not that hard. I have to dial it in. Yeah.
0: But, it's the, but in principle, if I want banana and clove plus
1: Whatever. X, yeah, exactly. We are we are rapidly approaching um, a day and age where you'll be able to literally pick and choose what flavors you want in an all-natural way. You're, nothing's artificial. You're just using things heart,
0: it's just stalled and isolated exactly right? which our friend we got to put a plug for our friend faye johnson yeah,
1: absolutely who
0: is the yeast queen oh my god did all of this amazing research with it right so like we know like you like yes uh is it very sciencey very sterile very cryogenic absolutely yeah. But yet, when you open that little sachet, like you were saying, you literally tear open the foil packet, you pull it out, you rehydrate it, and suddenly it's as if you had gone back in time to the 1890s to 1920s and took a ladle scoop not literally okay this is not literal we're doing it in a cleaner (laughs) more yeah more controlled way but it's kind of like going back in time and taking that ladle scoop out of the dunder pit
1: yeah exactly and i mean it's like look i remember when i was five years old learning how to paint i Whatever I painted was crap, but my parents selected it anyways. <laughs> but we all remember that little like eight or nine or ten color palette, right? Yes. What did you have to do? You had to dip your brush in water and then mix it into that powder. And guess what you got? You got this kind of liquidy color. Yes. It's exactly the same thing. Oh, I want a little bit of blue. I want a little bit of red. But instead of colors, you're adding flavor characteristics. I
0: love that you're using spices and colored pigments as a metaphor for the like bacteria and yeast interaction because I think that's perfect. And like, I was like, I wasn't worried. I knew we'd get here, but the stuff that you're doing is very, very technically complicated. And I don't say that to puff you up and I don't say that to scare people away. I just say that to acknowledge the skill set that you bring to the table to make this research possible is to be able to say, okay, Here's all these really technical things that need to happen to make this possible. And by the way, the long and the short of it is, we got a paint palette of flavors now.
1: Exactly, and the best part is, and I, that's, I've had some private conversations with some of the suppliers who I'm not going to name, but there's even more exciting stuff coming, because some- Viruses, of, I knew it. No, no <laughs> viruses, no, 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 no. But some of, some, of the, some of these yeast strains that they isolated way back when, And we're playing with way back when, we are finally about to start getting to play with. They're a little more complicated than our little friend Saccharomyces, right? Is this gonna turn into Jurassic Park? I don't think so. No, 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 no. It's just gonna, what this means for the consumer is you're gonna have um, people in the distilling world being able to more easily, through all natural means, make more flavorful spirits more easily. And if you have, you know, if you've got a small distillery, you know, in your neighborhood, and sometimes their stuff is that like they've got you know product you know and it's batch one versus batch ten. There might be some differences, right? Because there they're will still be figuring, some differences. Oh, actually, yeah, that's yeah. a that's a good point. There definitely be a differences, yeah. but <laughs> Come on. but but over time you will see that it'll become so much easier to have repeated success in this because. Through, through the efforts, and again, I'm, I'm just using what they've been able to create because these companies are the ones doing all the heavy lifting, because they're the ones that have to be able to make this repeatable every single time. And they basically say, hey, cool, we've done this, we know how to do this, we've really dialed it in, and we've got automation or whatever we need to make this exactly the same every single time. We've got the set of instructions that are easy to follow. You just follow that, you add it how we suggest, you can make something awesome, and all you're gonna literally do is cut open a packet that has a certain amount based on whatever you need for your fermentation, you add it in at a certain point, and as long as you have taken care to make sure that your fermentation conditions are gonna be successful, meaning it's not super hot, it's not super cold, you're not gonna stress out whatever is going on in there, you should, in theory, be able to have repeated success and the same flavor profile for your final product. Now, more importantly, what this allows you to do is plan for the future. Oh, planning for the future. Talk to me about barrels, baby. Yeah, dude, because now... Talk to me about barrels. Because now, once you really know, well, I really like this profile for my unaged spirit, well, what if I just go a little bit wider in my cuts and let the effect of time and barrel come into factor to really round this out and really elevate those flavors. So now you're thinking, okay, well, what if I wanna do a product that in say five to six years is gonna have these profile? Well, again, it's gonna be a little bit of trial and error and it's gonna depend on your barrel size or your intentions, but it becomes so much easier to do that. So not only, like say you're a startup rum distillery and you're like, okay, I wanna make delicious flavorful rum. Well, you can try a lot of things, but now you can have a very easy-to-repeat success that then you can release as a standard product, 40, 45, 50, or an overproof, which you're gonna get even more fun notes and the bartenders are gonna have a lot more fun with. And then you can allow that to age. And if you're using a new oak barrel, well, what type? Let's say American oak, because that's pretty common. Everyone kind of understands. If you've ever had a bourbon, you know what American oak is. It adds honey, butterscotch, caramel, vanilla. Depends on your char level and it depends on if it's toasted or not um but you can then know what that is now if you add this to if you put your say your product in a used barrel say a used whiskey barrel or a used cognac barrel or an apple brandy barrel or a used wine barrel then it gets really interesting because all those flavors that you like in those products the wine or the apple notes or whatever you can then add to that color palette that you've created And really just knock that out of the park and really start a fun conversation amongst your friends. You're like, whoa, man, this five-year-old product, hey, you get Apple on that? Yeah, I get Apple on that. Wow, that's really coming through. I wonder, is is that from what they did at the beginning or is that from the barrel? I don't know. Let's ask them. And now you've got that going on in your head. So when you go to the shelves and you're looking at all these different products on there, you're thinking about it. Well, did they finish it in something different? Did they age it in one thing or... Did they do something in between? We don't know, but you can talk to them. And then once you start having that conversation between consumer and the people that produce it, like myself, then it gets really fun because I enjoy what I do, you seem to really enjoy the product, and that feedback is really helpful because if, say, you really enjoy that Apple note and a lot of people come back with the feedback, say, oh, I would like, that's really amazing, but I would like a little bit more Apple. Hey, cool, I'll just change a little thing and then a few years from now when I release it again, you'll have your wish. Yeah. It's pretty. It's, we, we we can literally do that nowadays because as our understanding of what's going on in the fermentation environment gets better, as well as on the aging side, as well as with the distilling, like how the effect of distillation plays, it just really opens up this color palette. So,
0: yeah, this and this is to me this is somewhere between the conversation that one would have with a really amazing chef. And half the conversation that one would have with the food replicator on the Starship Enterprise.
1: Oh, I, absolutely. Do you see what I'm saying? No, right? absolutely.
0: And there's this high consistency that's coming from the inputs, and this high, this this intense amount of control. And and one of the things I do want to disclaim is that you're very very transparent in your paper about the places where you know, we need to replicate this research and that control maybe based on the conditions where you conducted the research. Wasn't completely possible. Yeah, it wasn't, but the, the results speak for themselves. And I think what we're referencing to in this and what I mean by that kind of dichotomy between like Michelin chef and the food replicator in the enterprise is like, those are not polar opposites. They're actually both on the same side because. Like, in this utopian picture that we have of walking up to this box and saying, I want, you know, uh, what is it, uh, tea Earl Grey hot? Yeah. Well, dude, you know Jean-Luc has a very particular oh, yeah. Earl Grey that he is envisioning. And so, the, the, you know, there's 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 granularity built into this. And so it seems like what you've got is this beautiful kind of mesh this weave of art and science that yeah. the people who are in the know like yourself and like this community that you're trying to build among distillers who might be prompted to replicate this pretty yeah. easy not easy from a technical standpoint but easy from a cost standpoint very research easy. yeah absolutely that, that you conducted
1: i mean is, these companies are more than willing to share like if you if i were to contact the companies that make some of these products and say hey I had a lot of success doing that earlier, but now I can actually control the fermentation. Do you mind sending me some samples of that? And I'll just, you know, I'll you know, I'll send it back to you for analysis. Just share with me, you know, your your GC your gas chromatography results, which just tells you what chemicals are in there. Yeah. Or if you do a flavor panel or a sensory panel, just let me know what they think.
0: Yeah, hey, P.S. I'm I'm just trying to replicate Brett's Brett's sure. research. Sure. That, that robustness really helps with the yeah. development of you know of this knowledge base that allows us to get like, you know, ultimately you know the art and the science converge i think absolutely and i i don't have a personal stance on whether the art or the science is superior because i think and this is this is not this is not like trying to self promote in any way but i think going back to what i was saying in the keynote of like the art and the science converge like the creativity yeah. and the raw materials and processes Are highly convergent and so that's what I love about this research that you're doing is that it seems to really be pushing both of those outcomes whether somebody wants to view it as art or whether somebody wants to view it as highly technically proficient and Mm -hmm. um, precise it pushes those two outcomes like closer to one another and to me that's the beauty of what you're doing I think that's the real novel aspect of it and The sidecar on that motorcycle is, P.S., this wasn't very costly. Here's my research. Please replicate it. Correct me if I'm wrong.
1: No, I mean, that's exactly it. The whole point of me doing this and the whole point of me being able to present this at the conference, um, you know, besides completing requirements for a master's degree, was just to start a conversation and say, look, I'm at a small facility and like, not giving you all the like the the numbers and like the cost behind things. It's like I used a couple of stainless steel drums with stainless steel lids. Yeah, I had a scale. I had a way of heating up liquid. I had a way of mixing the sugar, the water, and the molasses together. I had a way of rehydrating these. Okay, that's not that many things. I mean, you could do this small scale in your kitchen with a few with a few pots and pans, like literally, if you're doing yep. a super small scale. And you had those photos in your yeah. presentation deck, yeah. Right, exactly. And it's like, you. this is very easy to repeat. I'm not trying to get to the moon. I'm just saying, hey, this company released this product. I use a very standard, commonly used yeast in this industry, if you're trying to better understand your raw ingredients, because it's very neutral and it usually does not have fermentation problems, so you can really understand, well, if do I want this much molasses, this much sugar, or all those types of things? And okay, cool, I was able to have this success, and I can't even control the temperature of my fermentations because our production environment is just at the will of the weather, right? Yep. Okay, if I can do this there, imagine if you just could control that, because we can't, I, I, we couldn't, but you might be able to. You can have so much success. Now, if you are going to investigate this, Just talk about it. Go on to forums, go tech, like tell ADI, hey, I did this. Can you let other rum distillers that are potentially doing this, cause they know who's doing what, you know, just let them know, here's the successes that I had. Here's the failures that I had. And let's talk because, you know, I really believe in the distilled spirits products that are made in this country. Whether regardless of what raw ingredient they go to, but since I'm in rum, I'll just say American rum. And if we all believe in American rum and want American rum to be perceived around the world to the quality level that we think it is, Well, we need to talk about it. Because if there's only a handful of us that are actually investigating this stuff and actually being able to benefit from that, that doesn't help the wider industry. But if everyone can easily access that and call me and talk to me and say, hey man, I tried that, I had issues. I'm like, well, what'd you do? Oh, well, try this next time and just let me know. And here's what I did, I'll I'll continue to try to send you resources. We can all make better stuff. And I can tell you from the consumer perspective, because I also am a consumer, that helps me too, right? Because when I go travel, I always see who's making fun rum. And I love it when I grab a bottle of the rum and I'm, you know, surprised. I'm like, damn, that is really good. And I call them up or I email them and say, Man, your rum is fantastic. Do you mind me asking what you did? And people are like, ah I'm like, but I'm not trying to recreate your product in Maryland. We we, we do very well with what we're doing. Yeah. But there's other people that would like to know. Sure. And, you know, again the more people making good stuff the better it is for everyone consumer and producer well that's the paradox
0: again of the starship enterprise yeah. replicator right is that it doesn't just because they have synthahol and just because yeah. they can have whatever they want just replicated for them out of a box doesn't mean they still don't bring on these exotic things onto the deck so there's there's room for everybody this is exactly. not this is not a existent like the 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 standardization of some of these tex- techniques does not represent an existential threat to anybody no, it, it represents a opportunity to dial things in more for everybody exactly and so i so i well, i think we can probably leave it at that in terms of the research uh for the listeners we'll have all of this stuff available to you. Slides will have the the the, the um, dissertation paper available to you. You can just email me, podcast at modernbarcart.com. I'll throw it all at you. Maybe you have even better scientific literacy than I do, and you can you can, uh, you can can get through it even better uh, with an understanding than I did. But I want to talk before we run out of time here about the fun project you're doing with sea turtles. Oh, yeah, Talking yeah. Talking about
1: turts. <laughs> So, yeah, I, uh, very, right at the very beginning, I was talking about the project that I'm doing in Dominica. And um, so when you're in the distilling world or in the alcohol beverage space, um, life is interesting, to say, to say the least. You suddenly become popular with people that you never thought you'd be popular with.
0: I still, that still hasn't happened with me.
1: I don't know. People, people apparently really like where I live. And they're always oh, like, oh, okay. that's great. Come to my party. Bring some bottles. They said, okay, that's great. Um, they don't say bring Eric, though. Why would.
0: Oh, you I th- would. I
1: think you're charming. Okay, fine. And a lot of people I know think you're charming. So, um, but no, as as a rum distiller, you know, you have interesting people come through that tasting room, right? We've all gone to different distilleries and we've just seen the personality when you walk in, and you have different personalities coming in that door to try your stuff, right? So, what happened was a gentleman came into the distillery, um, talked to the owner, and she called me, and you know, Jamie said, "Hey, I need you to come to the distillery, talk to this gentleman." And he was looking for a way of having some kind of sustainable way to do, and a, a, a um, sustainable way to do sustainability. I know I said sustainability twice, but think of it this way. If you're doing a nonprofit, right? You're trying to help people probably, right? That's usually what nonprofits are about or animals or there's a cause behind it. Sure. But outside of going, asking, like, you know, applying for grants or to generous donations or whatever, how do you keep that going you're talking about a
0: sustainable funding base. that's the word for i was the looking for. project yes. yeah, yeah, yeah so
1: how do you sustainably sense. fund this this project with noble goals and ambition well this person realized well this you know i'm working on dominica to help you know um save the sea turtles there those are hawksbill or leatherback so leather the, D- the,
0: the dominican republic
1: uh, no dominica so dominica and uh, a lot of people think it's the dominican republic and they like, oh, i love punta Cana. Wrong island. So Dominica is located south of Guadeloupe, or you know, some people call it Guadalupe, and Marie Gallant, and north of Martinique. It's kind of right in the middle of the Caribbean. If you find Barbados and kind of draw a line at an angle um, to the northwest, you'll kind of hit it. It's very easty, right? Yeah, it's, it's very easty. It's got seven active volcanoes, 365 rivers. It's a lush jungle paradise. Oldest, and oldest or youngest island in the Caribbean. It, it, um, I don't know about the age of the island, but according I do know. Of,
0: according to Wikipedia, dude, it's uh, the youngest island. In well the then, yeah, it's Last the youngest island. island. Form.
1: But I can tell you one thing. It is the only island where you still have native population there so arawak the arawak style um, like, or
0: the people who kicked out the arawak uh
1: yes i, I can't remember the name i wanted i wanted to say tayano Te, uh, but um there are still native people that ha, have been there since time immemorial since they first landed on that island well dominica is besides being known for all those things it's known for being a nature's paradise and they take conservation on that island very seriously because everyone loves the things that are there the birds the animals the the turtles and this project and the goals of this are to figure out a um, sustainable way of supporting these conservation efforts. And luckily, sugarcane grows on the island really easily. There's four different types. You know, unfortunately, I only have the local names. They don't actually know what strains there are, and that really doesn't matter. But I can tell you this. It makes great rum. So Hey-o. we are currently in the process of getting this distillery up to full production. And once, to, and once it's up to full production, we will be making rum – um, with field to flask traceability more importantly besides generating you know economic opportunities not only for the organization to donate back to these efforts but you're going to be employing Local people, you're going to be paying farmers fairly, and you're going to be able to do real good on this island because and it's not
0: a huge island population-wise, right? No,
1: I think I think at max it's like sixty-five thousand, and I believe the island is yeah. like thirty to thirty-five miles long by about fifteen miles wide.
0: It, it, the Wikipedia there's, again says it's it's a little less than the size of New York City in yeah. terms of like full, like total area.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's a small island, but there's a lot happening. There's one major city called Ruzel. Uh, this distillery is located on the east side. Um, called Ro- it's uh, Rosalie Bay Distilling. Mm-hmm. It's right next to um, Rosalie Bay, this eco hotel, which is a, has a beautiful beachfront property where turtle, sea turtles come in in the evenings to nest. And if you're lucky enough to be there when there's a nesting event, it's truly a, something amazing to see. These, these ancient turtles that have been around and somehow survived since dinosaur times are still coming to this beach. They lay their eggs and when those turtles are born, they will go out and do whatever it is turtle stuff do. But when they come back, it's it's a really cool site to see.
0: Yeah, so we've got this, and what I love about this is like the so like how did sugar cane get to that island? Was it naturally occurring? Prob, uh, probably not.
1: Probably not. I think I think it was either imported from the French speaking islands or Barbados. That's at least what um. Lenox, was to probably French. It was French before
0: it was English. It was, and which is why
1: rum came late to it because it was always fought over.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. A really interesting history and. Uh, I, I think that it's fantastic to be able to go into this space and give them this self-sustaining base to the philanthropic work that they want to do right yeah. because and then this goes back this is this is where we tied in a bow baby. This is where your work as an engineer as somebody who understands the efficiencies of these systems really comes into play. Yeah right because we have this very old thing and 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 on dominica they don't have like a super strong rum culture they have they have a they have a long standing cane culture and they have the capacity and certainly have produced rum in the past but right. it's not this you don't think you don't think uh jamaica cuba dominica yeah. it's like no it's like you think barbados you think right, exactly. demerara you think yeah. like you know so it doesn't really have this really um, a, a super big presence in the world. And so you have this opportunity to go in, do some real good in terms of using efficiency, but you're doing it in this beautiful, natural context where they have this real... like it, I, I encourage folks to look up the island because, yes, it's not the Dominican Republic. It's Dominica. That third syllable gets the accent, right? Exactly. Dominica.
1: Yeah.
0: And look it up. Like this is, I think for me, I looked it up this afternoon while I had some downtime and I got really excited by just the beauty of this Island. And like, yes. Okay. Ecotourism, turtles. Okay, fine. Good. That's good for some people. But for me, like if that's the excuse to come and use the culture of rum and the efficiency that you've, been able to kind of harness and yeah. build with your career to do some real good and channel that money into local people who yeah. haven't maybe had so many opportunities new like the let's let's be honest the islands had some hurricane issues yeah
1: maria pretty much just decimated
0: the island right so it's not even just a lack of opportunities it's their hurricane punching bag yeah and they're working from behind yeah uh but also this intense natural beauty i mean i think there's i think there's an opportunity for some like really beautiful fusion in this i think so too and i think i don't know maybe i'm reaching here but it seems like some of this research that you're doing is a launch pad for fusion in rum flavors
1: I, i really do think so i mean once we dial in our our process down there there's always opportunity to add more flavor just like i said earlier I've got, I've got the colors that I want, but, oh, I could always add a little bit more. Mm. You can I add a little bit more detail, a little more contrast, and that's all we're trying to do with these products.
0: Mm. Mm. You sound like a Sephora makeup artist. Oh, I'm just going a little, little contrast, a little contour <laughs> here. Uh, well, Brett Steigerwald, we are at time we have some stuff to do this evening because we are done with our conference, baby. We both worked hard. Oh my goodness. You worked real hard. You've been running around. I've been running around. Um, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for the research that you've done and uh, just assure our listeners that, man, if you want to know anything, we will give you way more info than you could possibly handle. Like if you want to unscrew that fire hose, you can go ahead and drink straight from the hydrant on this and we'll give it right to you. So, uh, Brett, is there anything that you want to make sure we hit before we close out here and go about our uh, very wholesome, probably very sober evening here in uh, the city of uh, of the Vegas?
1: Bacteria aren't to be feared. You know, <laughs> oh, God. What, is that, is that a bad thing to say? I don't know, it sounds bad, it man. It sounds bad, but look, just look, just because you hear of the, 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 you know, the B word here, doesn't mean it's a bad thing. <laughs> Just know what you're doing. Like, look at yogurt. Yogurt's delicious. They use bacteria to make it. Okay. Don't, don't worry. But, you know, I, I, sorry to startle you there, but um, <laughs> look, it's it's been a long conference and uh, it's it's been a long time coming to get here. And I can just tell you that I hope you all, you know, enjoy this podcast. I hope you all, you know, contact us about the research. And if you have any questions, please do reach out. I would love to chat with you. And like you said, I will be more than happy to give you more information to know what to do with. But... Um, You know, there's a lot of fun in the future of rum and other spirits.
0: Amen. I can't say it better. Don't fear the yogurt, Brett Steigerwald. (laughs) I love you. Let's sign off. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, rum fermentation and distilling insights courtesy of Brett Steigerwald, a generous and timely grant from the American Distilling Institute, and a little bit of champagne sippin' interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.